I will begin in verse 21, and our text will be verse 22. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, and for consideration that, uh, today, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Saints of God, what is the aim of the Christian life? That is to say, what is the goal of the Christian life? What are we hoping for? With regard to not merely obtaining a place where we can go in the very end, but more so with ourselves. What is the goal? Why did Christ save us? What does the end look like for us as Christians? And here, in the latter half of verse 22 of our text, St. Paul gives us the answer. He says, in order to present you before him, holy and blameless. Holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If you were to ask yourself, saints, what does the future look like for me? Be of good cheer this afternoon. The future looks like this. You will be holy, you will be blameless, and you will be beyond reproach. That's the great comfort that we have as Christians. What Paul teaches us, congregation, is that the work of the triune God is this, is to make you like him. The work of, or rather, salvation is the work of Father and Son and Holy Spirit to make you like them, like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does this likeness look like for you to be holy, for you to be blameless, and for you to be beyond reproach? There is a problem with this text, however. As great as this sounds, there is a problem. The problem is this. Um, aren't we already holy, blameless, and beyond reproach? Aren't we already holy, blameless, and beyond reproach? In other words... Because we are united to Christ, who is holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, aren't we already that? Aren't we already what St. Paul says in verse 22? So how is it then that Christ reconciles us to God in order to present us holy before God? When, when we are united to God or to Christ, we are already holy. We do, we do, we do affirm that, do we not? That we in Jesus Christ, objectively, are holy. That we, objectively, in Jesus Christ, are blameless, and we, in Christ, objectively, are beyond reproach. So then, what is Paul talking about here? What Paul is bringing forth to us is the double benefits of receiving Jesus Christ by faith. The twin benefits of receiving Jesus Christ by faith. If you want to if you were to say this, what are the two great things that I receive in Christ? The two great things. John Calvin says this. But by taking of him, we principally receive a double grace. So when you receive Christ by faith, you receive a double grace. Namely, that being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we may have in heaven instead of a judge a gracious father. And secondly, that sanctified by Christ's spirit, we may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. In other words, saints, when you believe upon Jesus Christ, you are united to Christ and you receive two things. Not only do you receive Jesus Christ for the removal of the guilt of sin, 
justification, but also you receive Jesus Christ for the removal of the stain of sin. Sanctification. That is to say, your status before God of guilty is taken away, and then you yourself no longer do evil things in this earth. You receive both from Jesus Christ. You receive Jesus Christ not merely just for righteousness, that is a right standing before God, but also you receive Jesus Christ for wisdom. That is to say, how to live the Christian life. So you have Jesus Christ, saints, as one who, who, who are you, you are united to in order for you to stand before God, but also you receive Christ in order for you to live properly unto God. Live properly unto God. Isn't that the amazing thing, saints? We'll talk about this next week. But Jesus, when, when God saves us, he gives us not only a right standing before him, but also he gives us a principle by which we can continue to stand before him. The Holy Spirit, you know, the grace of Christ and all that. But we'll talk about that next week. Um, in our text then, St. Paul is teaching us that we not only um, are united to Christ for merely just Christ's righteousness, that is a right standing before God, but also we receive Christ who actually in this life makes us holy. Um, maybe this might be your first time ever hearing this, but in this life you are being made holy. In this life you are being made blameless. John Davenant then explains this verse well. He says, but here the apostle seems to comprehend a twofold holiness of those who are reconciled. So, in other words, you're reconciled to Christ, yes? Then you receive a twofold holiness. A twofold holiness. One, which consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We'll talk about that today. The other, which consists of our renovation and in the fruits of holiness. You look at those two things as justification and sanctification. In sanctification, saints, there is a renovation right now going on within you. That God is removing every single, every single stain of sin that Adam brought upon mankind out of you. For in both ways, Christ presents all, all his people before, uh, holy before God. In other words, Jesus Christ doesn't present you merely just holy because you are in him but because you are also actually holy. Okay. Um, by imputation, because they are regarded as one mystical person with Christ their head. But as to inherent holiness, in, so when you read the fathers, or if you read um, merely just the scholastics, when, you talk, when they talk about inherent holiness, what they're talking about is, are you yourself right now holy? Inherently. Are you holy? Mind will, all of that. Are you holy inherently in you? Acquires not the uh, 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 holiness, not uh, that is not affected instantly, but increases daily. So your inherent holiness, right? When you believe upon Christ, you are not automatically inherently holy. That is to say, you still have sinful thoughts. You still have a sinful. You you still have. Uh, a, a will that could be inclined to sin, to, that could do sinful things. But it, your holiness increases daily and acquires not the summit of its perfection. Oh, we, we only have to read that. We will consider this twofold righteousness or holiness um, today and next week. Okay, Today we will talk about our objective holiness. 
the objective holiness, or if you want just a fancy term, what's the formal cause of your holiness? What's the formal cause of your holiness? If you ever listen to debates between Roman Catholics and Protestants, the main hinge is this. The reason why you're a, you're a Roman Catholic is not because of the papacy primarily. The main hinge is this. What is the formal reason why I am why I am in a right standing before God? What what is the basis? What's the grounds? What constitutes my standing before God? Okay? And we will see it is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Justification then. What is justification? Justification, saints, is a glorious doctrine. Glorious doctrine. It is, to many, the ABCs of Christianity. However, saints, um, we aren't to view it as merely just the ABCs. Um, it is, in many ways, uh, a Mount Everest of a doctrine. It is one of those doctrines, saints, that should cause us um, to love our Christ, to love our God even more. Justification. Because in justification, in justification, saints, the, 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 the answer to the question of all questions is answered. Again, in, just, in, in, in the doctrine of justification, the answer of all, you know, of, of, of the main question is answered. And that is this. How is one made right before God? How are you right before God? How are you right? Is it by doing good things? Well, we all know that's. Not true. What's the grounds then? What's the basis? What do we plead? What do we scream at God on the day of judgment when he shows all of our sin on the screen? What do we plead? What do we run to? Justification answers it. It answers it. When Satan tempts you to despair, what can you grab onto? What doctrine? When? Not just Satan, but your family member and friends. When they commit you of being the grossest of Christian, the grossest of person, what do you, who do you cling to you, cling on to? Justification then teaches us how one is made right before God. The grounds of our acceptance before God, the only one whom we cling to is simply this, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the basis of our free acceptance before God. Amen. Amen. Because if it was any other way, you are going to hell. If it was any other way, if it was Jesus Christ plus my inherent righteousness, which is the basis and cause, formal cause of my acceptance before God, I'm doomed. But only Jesus Christ is the sole reason why we stand before God blameless. Is the only reason why God accepts us. Amen. Justification then is defined as that legal act of God by which he declares the sinner righteous on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's simply this. You can think of justification like this. God is a judge. He bangs the gavel on you and declares a verdict upon you. What's that verdict? It could be guilty. It could be innocent. Well, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. then you're innocent. If you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're guilty. 
This is what justification essentially is. It's a legal declaration that you yourself are holy, not because of you, but because of who you are united to, Jesus Christ. Why do we need justification, though? Why do we need it? Do we need to be justified? Do we need to be justified? Well, saints, when Adam sinned in the garden, not only are our natures corrupt, that is to say, not only do we do bad things, also, too, not only, be, not only is our nature disordered, right, but also Adam brought a legal status upon us. When Adam sinned, he brought a legal status upon us. And that legal status is guilty. If you don't believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ today, you are guilty before God, simply put. Every single baby comes into the world guilty before God. You are guilty before him. Adam lost his righteous status before God. Adam was created upright, but he lost his righteous status. And now we carry the status of guilty everywhere we go. Not we, first, because we believe in Christ, but those who don't believe in Christ, they carry a legal status of guilty. You might say, well, I didn't commit the sin personally. Yes, you did. Because Adam committed the sin. And because Adam represented you, right? You know, saints, we don't think that we are smarter than Adam either. <laughs> sure, we, we know we know what Adam what Adam was not to do because we have read all the all of you know what Revelation tells us, but we're gonna think that we wouldn't have done what Adam did. We're gonna think what we wouldn't have done what Eve did. We're going to think that the same cunning seduction of the serpent, right, um, would just bounce off of us. And we would say, oh, no, we know you're lying. But Adam did what we would have done. So the great question is this then. Young people, the great question of all questions is this. The question that they want, they're not going to teach you in college, they're not going to teach you in elementary school, in middle school, in junior high is simply this. Is how are we made right before God? This is the question of all questions. Is how how do you how do you go from a status of guilty to a status of righteous? How is that? How do you go from that status? How can God bang the gavel on an unrighteous person and say, "No, you are righteous." How does that happen? <clears throat> this is where Jesus Christ comes in the picture. This is where Jesus Christ comes in the picture. This is why, this is, this is where all other men pointed to, but also all other men failed at. Men meaning in the Old Testament. They're all pointing to this one who will come. This one who will undo what Adam did. This one. Jesus Christ then, saints. He does for us what Adam could not do, what Adam failed to do. And that is, he becomes for us righteousness. He is our federal head. Simply put, he's our representative. He represents us. Whatever Adam, whatever Christ does, what happens to us. Jesus Christ then, he merits for us. He merits for us. He earns for us a righteous standing before God. And he does this in two ways. Christ merits a right standing before God in two ways. Two ways, saints. First, he obeys the law completely. Jesus obeys the law completely. Jesus Christ, as a man, comes into the world righteous. And he comes into the world righteous in an unrighteous world. 
right? He, he, he lives in the very opposite of the Garden of Eden. He lives in thorns and thistles, right? He comes in the world righteous. He lives amongst unrighteous people. And that righteous status that he was born with, he continues to have. He obeys the law, not merely just outwardly, but also inwardly, right? He he testifies to the righteousness that he inherently is by what? Outwardly obeying the law. By Jesus' obedience to the law, then, he meets the demands of perfect righteousness that God requires for humanity. Saints of God, God requires of you the best. He requires of you, look at the law of God, and he says, do it perfectly. This is, this is not merely just hitting, um, I, I, don't, I don't know golf for This is not merely just hitting, you know, a hole in one. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is not merely just hitting a free throw. Not hitting a, you know, a half court shot. This is not that. This is not doable. You cannot do this at all. There is no possible way you can do this. Maybe outwardly you can do it. Sure, it's very easy for us, some of us rather, to not steal something. I'm pretty sure many of us will never murder someone. Outwardly, that's fine, but inwardly, too, in our minds, right? It's very, not very, it is impossible to do. So then God comes in the flesh. He says, I will do what you can't do. I will do what you can't do. Jesus Christ meets the man of Adam's failure in doing what? By obeying the law of God. Adam failed to obey the law of God in the Garden of Eden. Jesus says, all right, you know what? I'll pick up. I'll pick up the slack. And I will obey the law of God perfectly. The eternal son of God, rather. I will obey the law perfectly. Anthony Burgess says, Christ died not only to redeem us out of prison, but to invest us with all glorious dignity and honor. Oh, what a beautiful quote that is, saints. This is what's called the active obedience of Jesus Christ. As a credit to you, it simply put is this. That when you believe upon Jesus Christ, you don't just have you don't just have one who died for you, but you have one who lived for you. And if you don't have the active obedience of Jesus Christ, if you don't have Christ who who lives the life, you know, accord, perfectly according to the law, then essentially you're put back into the garden. Or you could say something like this. Essentially, you are given a bank account with a neutral balance. You're at zero. We don't need zero. I don't want zero. Zero doesn't get you to heaven. Zero doesn't get you to beatific vision. Zero plays you back in the garden with Adam and Eve and the animals. But rather, what you need is a positive account. You need a positive accrediting. You need someone who's actually done the work for you. And that's what Jesus Christ does. He does that in his life. Secondly, Christ merits for us a righteous standing by dying and rising for us. Now, remember, saints, because of Adam's sin, we have a uh, legal status of guilty before God. And what's the punishment of that legal status? What's the punishment? Death. That's the punishment. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
The day if you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay? Exclude the spiritual aspect of it. You will physically die. You will physically die. St. Paul says uh, in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. What is sin's main objective in this, in this life, saints? It is to kill you. Why? Because you cannot come back from that. That is sin's main objective. And once, and once, and once you have died, then sin has won. Then sin has won. Jesus Christ then, as the one who stands in our place, is condemned for us. He's condemned for us. Jesus Christ, as our representative, right, pays the punishment of our sin, which is death. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans 4.25. He says, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions. He is not only sin bearer, he's also guilt bearer. He bears our guilty sentence before God. He, he, is, he becomes one with us. In other words, Jesus Christ was delivered over to death. He bears our transgressions, meaning he bears the offense. But also, he bears the sentence. He says, I'm going to die as well. So what we have on the cross is this. Jesus was publicly condemned in our place. At the cross, what you have is one on the cross, not because of his own sin, but because of your sin, is condemned for you, for us. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment of our well-being was laid upon him. The Bible is explicitly goes to great pains to, to make it very clear that Jesus did not die for his own sin. He died for your sins. He died for your sins. Our offense, our sentence, Jesus Christ undergoes. But saints, and this might be a little bit off topic, but it might be appropriate for us to, to just take two minutes on, if not shorter. When we say that Christ bears our offense, when we say that Christ bears our sentence, when we say that he satisfies the justice of God, we must not take that too far and run with it. We must not take that too far, and we must not make gross statements about what Jesus Christ does and how he satisfies divine justice, meaning that there's some might say that God, ever since Adam fell, has been so angry at us. And when Christ was on the cross, it was God's time. It was his perfect um, um, opportunity to let out all of his frustration that he's been holding up ever since Adam fell upon humanity. And he then unleashes it upon Jesus Christ. You might hear preachers say that. A great example or a great um, um, yeah, example or proof text they might they think that that um, um, is is for that or toward that is when Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is that moment when the full anger of God that he's been storing up has been unleashed unleashed upon Jesus Christ. You know, and they, and they they might say that, you know, there are certain separations that happen. The father no, looks, no longer looks upon the son or, you know, there's a separation within Christ and, and the members of his body. Something crazy happens. Saints of God, let me tell you something. And, I, and I've spoken upon this at length already. But the reason why the father is satisfied at the son's satisfaction, at his son's death, is not because of the anger that was poured out upon the son. 
It's not because of the anger that's poured out upon the son. The reason why the father accepts the son's sacrifice, two reasons. One, because of who is, who is being on the cross, who is on the cross, but also, but also the manner or the way in which he presents himself to the cross. It is the eternal son who is dying for us, who has infinite value, but also coupled with that, it's the way in which he dies. He goes to the cross. He says, not my will, but yours be done. There is an exceeding amount of love that's being shown upon or being shown to the being shown to the father by the son. He says, father, I love you this much that I will give my life over. <clears throat> we must not then, saints, uh, romanticize. We must not we must not take this take this this sweet gospel truth and distort it into something that is heresy that jesus christ bears our offense he bears our condemnation uh but in no way shape or form um does the father look upon the son any differently than he did from all eternity from all eternity as we move on then to christ's resurrection what we have is this christ if you want to think about christ's resurrection think of it in this way first and foremost at Christ's resurrection, he's justified. At Christ's resurrection, he is justified. In other words, at Christ's resurrection, his status of condemned for our stake is overturned to a status of righteous. Righteous. Romans 5, 16 through 17. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one offense, resulting in condemnation. In other words, because of what Adam did, right, What's the result? Condemnation. Death. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses, resulting in justification. For by, uh, for if by the one offense of the one, death reigned through the one. In other words, the result of Adam's offense is death. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. In other words, what's the result of Christ's life? Of obedience, life. Amen. What's the result of Adam's life of disobedience? Death. What's the result of Adam's uh, Christ's life of obedience? Life. Life. Not just life with regard to like, hey, you're here now. You yeah, now you you go from the realm of nothingness. Now you are in a state of existence. No, 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 not that. But righteous life, a a right standing before God. What Paul is saying is Adam's one offense brings death. Adam's one offense brings you a status of guilty. Jesus Christ bears that offense. He undergoes the penalty for our sins and he's raised to new life. Paul speaks of this in 1 Timothy 3.16, which classically theologians have called Christ's justification. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who, he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated, um, a little bit of a sloppy word, it should say justified. He was justified in the Spirit. Now, notice St. Paul says Christ at his resurrection, he was justified by the Spirit. And saints of God, essentially what Paul is saying is at the resurrection, Jesus Christ is declared to be righteous. He's declared to be righteous. 
at his resurrection, Jesus Christ is declared to be righteous. Now you might say, wait a minute, I thought he was already righteous. How can he, how can he be declared righteous? Three ways. Three ways, quickly. Number one, he's first declared righteous with respect to the wrongful verdict that had been issued against him by the sinful human court. Do you remember, saints, at that mock trial? You have Christ, and then who's next to him? You have Barabbas. Who do the people choose? They chose Barabbas. Christ's resurrection, then, is God overturning the wrong verdict that was issued upon Jesus Christ at that trial. He's saying essentially this. You chose the wrong person. You chose the wrong person. You should have picked Barabbas. That's number one. Number two. Number two. God, um, uh, uh, Jesus Christ then is declared righteous in the sight of God. Okay. That doesn't mean that Christ was not righteous at his death. He was not righteous at his life. What it means is this. That now this is a public proclamation. There are times in Christ's life when the heavens open up and the Father says that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What we have in the resurrection is another proclamation, not in words, but an outward manifestation. Saints of God, you have to understand this, that at Christ's resurrection, God is publicly saying to the world, he is making his final, final say that this one is righteous. That this one is righteous. Now, how is he righteous? Yes, because he lived a life of righteousness. And God says, because you lived this perfect life of righteousness, I will resurrect you, saints. That is true. But also, he defeats sin. Remember, sin. Sin, saints, is, is that uh, by, which, by which wants you to die. So by Christ rising from the dead, it shows that sin has no power over this one. Sin cannot claim this one. Gerhardus <clears throat> Voss says, God, through suspending the forces of death operating on him, declared that the ultimate supreme conscience of sin had reached its termination. In other words, resurrection had annulled the sentence of condemnation. Saints of God, <clears throat> the ultimate supreme consequence of sin had reached its termination. What's the consequence of sin? Death. Death had an expiration date and has an expiration date. It had an expiration date with respect to Christ and it has an expiration date with respect to you. That death will be thrown in the lake of fire with Satan. That death will one day and we will shout out, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Yes, yes, we can say, we can say, sin has its victory when you die. Amen. Because we are still living. We are still, we are still, we are still connected in some way, shape or form to that curse. Because we undergo death. However, however, this is the great, this is the great hope of the Christian. That death, as we, as, as Pastor Antonio and I frequently, and many of you parents frequently experience, death is not like our disobedient children. Death will not have the final say. 
death will not have the final say. Why do we know that? Because it didn't have the final say with Jesus Christ. That's how we know. Because it did not have the final say with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ then undergoes our condemnation. And what does he do, saints? He says, I will cancel that out and I'll be raised to the newness of life. Okay, how does this relate to us then? How does this relate to us? How does all we've talked about relate to us and our right standing before God? Because it seems like all of this happens for Christ. <laughs> well, what about me? What about me? <clears throat> How does Christ being righteous then, declared righteous, holy and blameless before God, relate to us who are not holy, righteous and blameless before God? Here's the glorious news congregation. Our justification is a participation in Christ's justification. That's the amen of, 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 of Christianity. That our being made right before God, God's declaration upon you saying you are right, is a participation in Christ's own experience of God declaring that he is right. You share in that status of Jesus Christ being holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. You share in that status, congregation. It is yours in Jesus Christ. When the Spirit unites us to Christ, we become in union with Christ. And, you know, we know this in a marital union. You know, men and women, be, they become one together. You know, you, you, they share multitude of things. In G, when we believe upon Jesus Christ, saints, the Spirit unites us to Christ. And here's, here's, here's the close proximity that we have with Christ. Everything that's Christ becomes ours. That Jesus Christ is the head. The spirit takes us, the body, unites together. And what's the first thing we receive? His status of righteous. The head cannot be righteous if the body is not. If we are connected to the head that's righteous, the, the body doesn't the body cannot cannot not be righteous. But we are righteous. We participate in Christ's own vindication at his resurrection. In other words, what was happening over two thousand years ago when the tomb was rolled away? That proclamation of Christ being righteous was your event as well. The Christ event is your event. It's your event. It's your events, congregation. When Christ was raised, as I've said many times, it's not Christ is not merely raised as a human individual. But he's raised as a corporate person. He does, there, there, there's not just one body raised at the resurrection. There's two bodies. It's Christ's physical body, but also his mystical body. It's the church. The church is raised with Jesus Christ. So when we believe upon Christ by faith, that verdict of innocent and righteous that was declared upon Jesus Christ is declared upon you. Amen. You. Amen. Because you share yes. in union, you're in union with Jesus Christ, you yes. share in his status. Yes. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Put another way, when Christ was raised from the dead, it was a public declaration of his righteousness. And when we trust in Christ by faith, that righteous status that Christ has is reckoned to us. Classically known, imputed to us. It's imputed to us. It's reckoned to us. We are no longer then saints. Guilty criminals awaiting death row. No longer. 
We are rich inheritors of paradise. That's what we are now. And saints of God, the grounds of this is not you. It's Jesus Christ. The basis and the grounds of all of this is Jesus Christ. Christ's righteousness and our being united to him is the sole reason why we're accepted before God. The sole reason. Let me just give you one verse. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before him, the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing to his right to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord has cho- who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. This is not a log snatched from the fire. Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And he responded and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to them, see, I have taken your guilt away from you and I will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, I have put I put them a clean headband on his head. So they put a clean headband on, on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. One of the greatest examples of a righteousness not found in our own, but found in another found in the Old Testament. Joshua, hear me, saints, hear me now. Joshua stands before God the judge. The Lord stands on his left. Satan stands at his right. Satan knows that he's going to win. Why? Because Joshua the high priest is filled with filthy garments. In other words, he's filled with human excrement. Joshua knows he's guilty. Satan knows he's guilty. Satan ready to, ready to unleash, unleash all of his defense. And then what happens? Before Satan says a word, God says, I rebuke you, Satan. Before Satan says a word and says, Lord, what are you going to do? Not not what are you going to do, but you have to punish this one. He says, I rebuke you. And he gives two reasons. One, because he's mine. Is this not a log snatched from the fire? Is this not one whom I have loved from all eternity? Is this not one whom I have set my love upon and I've given to the Son, and the Son in the fullness of time will come, live, die, and rise, ascend, and will return for him? Is this not that one? And then what does he say? He doesn't just leave him there. He says, now take off his filthy garments. And what happens, saints? What happens? They remove his filthy garments and they put upon him festive robes. They they put upon him festive robes. They put upon him a headband. And essentially what you have, saints, in Joshua's experience is your experience that you are not merely just clothed and covered in Christ, but also you are engrafted in Christ. Saints of God, this is this is our story. This is our story. This is all of our stories. 
Saints of God, this cannot be ignored. This point cannot be ignored. That the only sole reason why we are justified, why we are, why we are, why God can have eyes that look upon us is because of Jesus Christ. It's the only reason. This is not, as Roman Catholics will say, a legal fiction, meaning that God declares you righteous, because, but you're really not righteous. No, 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 no. Here's one, here's one, uh, here's one answer to that, to that, to that classic argument is this, is that God will not declare anyone righteous who is not actually really righteous. Why? Because God's not a liar. God is not a liar. If he says you're righteous in Christ, then you're righteous in Christ. Then you're righteous in Jesus Christ. Since Jesus was declared righteous and since we are united to him, we are therefore righteous in him. And we have to ask, saints, in closing, how does this become ours, though? Young people, if you're hearing this, how do I receive this status? How can it be mine? Here is the scandal of the gospel. By faith. By faith. By faith, Jesus Christ and all of his winnings can be yours. That's the scandal of the gospel, saints. Now, of course, next week we'll talk about the manner and the form of that faith. We will talk about that. What does faith look like? But the scandal of the gospel is this, that there's nothing that you can say or do but assenting to the truth of the gospel and believing upon Jesus Christ. Faith, saints. Faith. Faith is not, and there's a great misconception, is not incorporated in what saves you. And don't think that. Faith is not, is what, in, is, 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 is incorporated in what saves you. But rather, saints, faith is merely just the instrument. It's the means. It's the way in which you are saved. Now, why am I making this distinction? Because it is only Jesus Christ who saves you. It is only Jesus Christ. And the way in which my hand touches Christ's hand is by the Holy Spirit giving me faith. That's the only, 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 only way. Saints of God, we must not affirm that faith saves, but rather it is Jesus Christ, the one who faith unites you to, that saves. Jesus Christ saves. Jesus Christ is the great agent of salvation. Faith is the great means, the great instrument of salvation. Jesus Christ is the agent who accomplishes our salvation. And faith is that which grabs hold of the one who accomplishes our salvation. Amen. Amen. Along with the Spirit's help, of course. When we believe things, what we are believing is upon Jesus Christ through faith. Matthew one twenty one, and she shall give birth to a son, and you shall you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. For this one, not your faith, and not your works, and not your inherent righteousness, but this one will save his people from their sins. Saints of God, it is because of Jesus Christ that we share in his righteous person. Philippians 3.9 
St. Paul sums up this. He says, and not being found in him, and or actually, and being and and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. In closing, saints, <clears throat> what do we say? We say the words of St. Paul in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what we say. That's what we... That's the reason why we have such joy, is it not? Because there is no dividing wall. Because God himself broke it down. God himself broke it down. And saints of God, any time... And we'll talk about this more next Sunday. But any time you attempt to accredit yourself with anything, remember the words of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30-31. We'll close with this. But it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray.